Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about an amazing true crime podcast. Jamie Snow is serving life in prison for a crime he says he didn't commit. Now, listen as he tells the story from Stateville Prison in Crest Hill, Illinois, in the Snow Files. Season 1 focused on the trial and presented new witness evidence and taped interviews never before revealed, while Season 2 covered forensics. In September, a judge ruled Jamie should be given nearly 8,000 documents that were withheld from him and his attorneys. This is the first time he has received relief in 22 years. The final season of The Snow Files, which is now available, wraps it up with a deep dive into the alternative suspects and other wrongful convictions in McLean County that were presided over by the same state's attorney. Together with co-hosts Bruce Fisher, Tammy Alexander, Leslie Pires, and Ray Wilson, listen to Jamie tell a story about his wrongful conviction guaranteed to make you laugh, cry, and shock you to the core. He not only tells you his story, but he interacts with listeners and answers questions. New episodes of The Snow Piles are released every other week, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Or download Jamie's case files and listen directly at snowfiles.net. My name is Charlie Moss, and I've been a freelance journalist and writer for more than 10 years. I've written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, and other publications. I also used to work for an online camping magazine called The Dirt. It was there that I wrote about a haunted campground just outside of Stanton, Virginia. The more I dug into the story, the more I realized that this wasn't just a simple Halloween ghost tale. It was something much deeper, much more profound than I ever imagined and I've spent the last three years finding out as much as I can about what happened at Braley Pond. This is episode nine, A Palpable Presence. Uh, I've been locked up so long. I've been away from everything so long. I, I don't know if I know how to be free anymore. Like, it, this place, they call it a correctional facility, but there's no attempt at corrections whatsoever. This is a place where they just put you in a house you like cattle so they can make money off of you. If anything, uh, if you if you let this place take you over, you become a worse person than you did coming in. You know, you really have to strive to become better than you were when you first came to penitentiary by being in here, because this is one of the environments where everything that can go wrong will go wrong, and nobody really gives a fuck about whether it goes wrong or not. Seth's supposed to serve his time in prison until 2027. But he could get out as early as 2022 or 2023. As the prospect of his freedom gets closer, Seth becomes increasingly nervous about what he'll do with his life once he's released. He talks to me about his desire to change his life for the better. And I'm not no perfect angel. I've, I've done drugs and stuff like that, too. I don't know more. Uh, that's what ruined my life. It's the reason why I'm in prison. But I just, I, I feel like I got a, a good lease on life. I, I honestly believe that prison saved my life and that it changed me for the better. When I do finally, I have to put in 20 years before I become ineligible. But once I get that 20 years in, I want them to be like, no question, let him come home. You know? Seth told me over email he wants to do some correspondence courses, maybe computer literacy or business management. When he does get out, he thinks he'd like to own his own business, 
work for himself. When we were at Chris's grave back in episode 2, I asked Kevin how he feels about Seth's role in his best friend's murder. Is he still angry at him after all this time? I'll ask him, I'm going to be like, you know, just... And I said, you know, Tinsley, if you, know, if you were scared of him, you could have called someone, called me, called someone and said, hey, this is the location where we're going. I'm not going to say, hey, Tinsley texted me or called me. No, I'm coming here, you know, yeah, and everything else like that. In one of my phone calls with Seth, I asked him how he's feeling about what happened at Bradley Pond almost 20 years later. I mean, I feel bad for the whole situation anyways. You know, I'm not, I'm not a drug addict anymore, so now I'm in full control of my emotional facility. So I definitely do regret the whole situation and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like that's just penance, you know. Like, I'm not ever going to be allowed to forget him because... I should have never did what I did, even though I didn't actually kill him. I might as well, because there was opportunities where I could have told him, you need to go, or they're planning on killing In my research for this podcast, I found every article I could about Christopher Kennedy's murder. His death shook the town of Stanton into action against gang violence. But there's something I came across that I haven't mentioned yet. It's about a brains flat Virginia woman named Bonnie Santiago, who went missing in July... 2014. She was last seen on Carter Mountain in Charlottesville. Police said when the 56-year-old's car was found, it looked like there was a violent struggle inside, with blood believed to be Santiago's found at the scene. The rearview mirror inside her car had been torn off. Bonnie was never found, and in 2016, police declared that she was most likely dead. Bonnie had seven children and 14 grandchildren. That name sounded very familiar to me. I couldn't put my finger on why, though. I went back through all of my research until I found the headline from the local Stanton newspaper. Single mom goes it alone after slang. In my conversation with Christopher's dad, Jeff Kennedy, who was featured in episode four, he mentioned something unusual that happened at his son's funeral. I had, at the funeral, I had three girls that came up to me and said, I, uh, I'm carrying Chris Scott's baby. And I, I addressed all three girls. I told them, we'll go down and have a parental, you know, the test done, DNA test done to see if it's Chris Scott's baby or not. And then at the funeral, I never heard from another one of the girls. You never heard from So I'm not sure. No, 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 because, I mean, they, they, either one of them, if they would have come up as Chris Scott being the father, he, they would have collected the Social Security and everything. I mean, they they were entitled to his benefits that he was getting, and plus dying like that, you know, they would get some kind of kind of benefit. The kids would get benefits from it, but nobody nobody came back and reapproached me about the parental test. Kevin Robertson also mentioned something to me in one of our conversations about Christopher getting a girl pregnant. Something about that. Chris knocked up someone and his baby mom and uh, Chris uh, wanted out of the set. He wanted to just do him. He wanted to take care of his kid and he actually wanted to do something good, you know? And actually, I, Chris was always that kind of guy, you know? Chris was just, if something's there, you know, Chris, hey, he's going to take care of it either way. So if Chris did in fact have a baby, who's the mother? whatever became of his baby. The Newsleader article that I had collected in my research answered at least one of these questions. 
The piece features a woman named Tracy Santiago, who was around Chris's age at the time of his death. In it, she claims to have given birth to Christopher Kennedy's baby after his murder. According to the article, Tracy didn't know she was pregnant until after Christopher died, which conflicts with Kevin's account of the situation. Regardless, Christopher died never getting the chance to meet his child. Eight months after his murder, Tracy gave birth to a five pound, eight ounce baby girl. She named the little girl Christina. If he had been here, he'd have been at the birth helping me, Tracy's quoted as saying. According to the article, Christopher showed Tracy bruises he had on his back from a beat-in during his gang initiation just days earlier. Before her daughter's birth, Tracy saved all the newspaper articles she could about Christopher's murder, along with a photo album filled with pictures of him, to one day show Christina. I wanted to talk to Tracy about her relationship with Chris, and possibly even talk to Christina, who would be around 18 now. I found a couple of social media accounts for Tracy and reached out to her, but she's no longer active online. I found her brother, Andrew, who did respond to me regarding my request to talk to Tracy. He told me it's an incredibly sensitive topic for the family, but he'd ask her and get back with me. After following up a couple of times, I never heard back from Andrew. Of course, I completely understand their desire of not wanting to rehash long-buried feelings in an effort to move on. I also understand the need for Andrew and Tracy to protect Christina's feelings about the father she never got to meet. As a courtesy, I did let Andrew know I would be talking about them in this podcast. I hope that perhaps this project can be something that will help bring the Santiago family some sort of peace regarding Christopher's death, and that Christina might one day listen to it and learn more about the father she never knew. It's true that Christopher was trying to get out of the gangsta disciples. Seth talks about it in episode four. It's part of the reason why they murdered him, but exactly why he wanted to get out isn't known. Did he know about Tracy Santiago being pregnant like Kevin says he did? Or is this just a case of misinformation, something Kevin heard as hearsay? Whatever the case may be, Kevin's convinced that Christopher would have survived if he was just given the chance to talk it out with Candace Knott and his cousin Kenny Jackson. If there's a problem, if Chris has got a problem, Chris, hey, I'll tell you right now, Chris ain't scared to walk up to you and say, hey man, this is the situation, and Chris is not a fighter. Chris is actually a good cop, hey, had a good personality and a good, you know, a sense of, you know, intelligence about if, if something was bothering him, he wasn't scared to actually go up to somebody and say, hey, you know, I got this problem, you know, with you or not you and say, you know, and I think we can resolve it without, you know, bickering or fighting about it because I hate when people ignore me. That's how Chris was. I keep thinking about my trip to Braley Palm with Shane Kevin. I don't know that I'm convinced that there's some mysterious stark energy that's there lying dormant like Shay spoke about. I've been thinking about an email I got from Dr. Leo Broussard, the physicist I talked to at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. A few weeks after my visit with her, I emailed Dr. Broussard with some follow-up questions regarding the ability to read energy, the way Shay and her mom believe they can. She explains to me that energy is a very precisely defined term in physics. You can read someone's energy by calculating their velocity, or measuring their temperature, or determining the gravitational pull of the Earth, she says. But the idea of energy in a supernatural sense is not accepted in physics. The very important reason for this, she tells me, is that scientists want to understand the way the world works without biasing themselves with ideas of how it should work, which is very challenging. Physicists try to strictly avoid ideas that are vaguely identified or require belief, and incorporate only models based on quantifiable data, which has survived many rounds of testing and skepticism. It is human nature to hold beliefs and very hard for us to let go of them once we have them, Dr. Broussard writes in her email. She points out that she was contacted by hundreds of people who want to believe that portals are real, who are desperate to be put in touch with relatives who passed away, who are depressed and want to go to a better universe. 
She believes they will be taken advantage of as a result. I'm quoting Dr. Broussard directly here. Beliefs can be manipulated. If I can get you to believe you have an aura or energy or whatever, I can take advantage of you and sell you magic potions to purify your aura or convince you that my enemy's aura is bad and you should cause them harm. This is very clearly different from, for example, me telling you why taking your temperature is important and selling you a thermometer. We can perform repeatable experiments to demonstrate why this is so. It is essential that physicists not keep an open mind. We can only endorse what we can prove to be a fact. The essence of science is healthy skepticism. There is, of course, an important balance. Dr. Broussard, of course, makes a very good point here. And I've tried to keep this in mind during the making of this podcast. Because a lot of the stories we've heard from Shay, Logan, and folks like Robert Perala and Christine Day are fantastical in nature. A lot of what they espoused requires you to take leaps of faith, to be open-minded, and undoubtedly challenge you in your own belief system. As I've said before, however, the point of this podcast was to never try to disprove any of these stories. It's meant to be exploratory in nature, to get different perspectives on what happens after you die. And here's one more. Remember when I tried to get an interview with someone from the University of Virginia's Division of Perceptual Studies back in episode 5? Turns out, after emailing a third faculty member, Dr. Edward Kelly agreed to chat with me. Dr. Kelly is a professor of research in the department and has a PhD in Cognitive Sciences, which is a scientific study of the mind and how it works. His research focuses on parapsychology and paranormal phenomena that challenge the current neuroscientific view of the mind. Hey, Dr. Kelly, it's Charlie Moss. How are you? All right, how are you? The Division of Perceptual Studies, or DOPS for short, was founded in 1967 by Dr. Ian Stevenson and is devoted to, well, basically, the aspects of our mind that other scientists prefer to distance themselves from. Um, and the general purpose of the division is to study various phenomena that conflict with mainstream views about uh, mind and brain. You know, the basic story is in academia that Everything in mind and consciousness is manufactured by physiological processes going on in brains. Uh, clearly, if reincarnation occurs, there's something wrong with that picture. Um, other things that we study are things like near-death experiences. And by the way, um, uh, one of our colleagues, Bruce Grayson, is, has just published a book titled After, uh, which is going to be a huge thing is it describes his 40-something years of research on near-death experiences and what they tell us about what may happen after death. Hmm. Um, we also study things like mediumship, apparitions, spontaneous cases of various kinds. Uh, and what I have brought to DOPS is a, an experimental side. We've created a, a neuroimaging lab where we mainly do EEG, although we're also uh, getting interested in kind of a poor man's fMRI, this uh, uh, FNIRS, functional near-infrared spectroscopy, which uh, measures things like uh, blood oxygenation um, and is quite compatible with EEG. That's why we're interested in it. Anyway, so uh, and we're trying to mount an experimental program where we uh, particularly focus on gifted subjects able to either do uh, experimental psi tasks like uh, clairvoyance, telepathy type tasks, or have the ability to get into uh, unusual states of consciousness that we believe to be 
psych-inducive. These are things like uh, mediumistic trance, hypnotic trance, out-of-body states, deep meditative states, things like that. What I find really interesting about Dr. Kelly is that he and others at Dobbs are working to bridge the gap between religion and spirituality and the kind of scientific thinking Dr. Prasad referred to earlier, the reluctance to keep an open mind and endorsing what can be proven only as fact. Dr. Kelly and his peers at UVA are able to balance both of these mindsets, it seems. So I asked him about Shay's abilities and what his impression is. It's kind of at the margins of the scientific work. Uh, there's a huge literature about it. Most of it is of little or no scientific value. Um, I do take it somewhat seriously. We haven't figured out any way to uh, get involved with it that we're particularly comfortable with. Uh, I have an engineering colleague who is studying something that seems to be related. It's the ability of certain people to produce anomalous voltages outside their bodies. And nobody has any idea how they do that, uh, but he's working on a uh, sort of... Uh, instrumental setup that can uh, at least potentially demonstrate the reality of the phenomenon. And once there's a phenomenon, of course, we can try to understand what's behind it. So we kind of keep this uh, arm's length for now. We're interested, kind of tracking it from a distance, but uh, not actively involved in that ourselves. While UVA might be tracking this from a distance, they are doing research on more subtle energy, like the kind I talked about previously that comes from martial arts like Tai Chi. This, Dr. Kelly says, falls under the study of psychokinesis. We do uh, research on psychokinesis, for example. I mean, you might think uh, a lot of the things that come under the heading of subtle energies and you know, martial arts and so on are PK-like in the sense that they seem to involve possibly anomalous effects on the physical environment, not, not uh, carried out in the normal sort of uh, ways by the brain and body. This, of course, leads into my next question, which is about what happened to Shay at Braley Pond in 2003 and all the things she told Kevin and me during our trip there about the darker energy she felt there and the more, for lack of a better term, positive energy helping to contain it. I'm not uh, super familiar with it, to be honest, but... Uh, some of the cases are quite strong, I believe. Some places are reputed to have positive energies. One that uh, sticks out in my mind is the, uh, the room where Sri Aurobindo used to meditate. Dr. Kelly is referring to an early 20th century philosopher and yogi who, after a series of fundamental spiritual realizations, quit politics and moved to the city of Pondicherry in the Indian territory of Puducherry. There, he devoted himself entirely to his spiritual work. He stayed there for 40 years and developed the practice of integral yoga, which is meant to liberate consciousness and transform human nature. Along with his spiritual partner, Mira Alfasa, or the mother, as she was referred to, they founded the Sri Aurobindo Ashram, which is a spiritual community that still exists today. Mike Murphy, who's a, the co-founder of Esalen, was a big Aurobindo fan and went to Pondicherry, you know, where he had his ashram. And uh, he, he, Mike describes, and apparently a lot of people get the same sense, going into that room and just feeling the place being sort of alive somehow with Aurobindo's presence and this sort of warm energy suffusing the place. Esalon, by the way, is the Esalon Institute in Big Sur, California, a world-renowned spiritual retreat and educational center considered to be at the forefront of the human potential movement, which is exactly what it sounds like. Is it really there? I can't say for sure whether there's something 
literally there, but uh, uh, these there are lots of reports of these things. We we've got to figure out some way to measure something, and we don't have that at the moment, to my knowledge. There there are a few. I mean, there are actually quite a few little companies that sell contraptions that they claim can detect and measure subtle energies, but I think it's mostly nonsense. So interesting, not not much solid there so far, but uh, right. that doesn't mean it's not real. Um, but we don't yet really know how to pursue that. Dr. Kelly and I then changed topics to ESP, which is one of the Division of Perceptual Studies' main fields of, well, studies. ESP, if you don't know, stands for Extrasensory Perception. Uh, extrasensory perception, or ESP, which means information coming into you uh, across some sort of a barrier. But, uh, you know, that term has kind of surplus theoretical connotations. It makes it sound as though it's something like ordinary perception. Similarly, you know, telepathy, clairvoyance, clairaudience, things of that sort. The term psi was introduced just to cover the whole lot, basically. Okay. Uh, and most of us who are in the field prefer to use that term, which avoids all that sort of surplus baggage theoretically. But that's that's all it means. You know, there's um, information either goes out into the environment or comes in from it across some sort of a barrier that would, if the mainstream picture of things were correct, would be sufficient to prevent those things from happening. So, for example, on the input side, uh, the targets might not even be generated until tomorrow. So there's a time gap, or there could be a spatial gap. They could be in another place, or they could be inside a black envelope or what have you. So there's a barrier in place that should prevent that information from flowing, and yet people can uh, guess the targets, let's say, at uh, rates measurably better than chance expectancy. Remember that scene in Ghostbusters when Dr. Peter Vinkman is doing an experiment involving two participants trying to guess what card he's showing? He tells them, I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. That's kind of what Dr. Kelly is talking about, the ESP part, not the negative reinforcement part. Though I'm hesitant to push the boundaries in my chat with Dr. Kelly as far as how outlandish I can get, I do anyway. I ask him in a roundabout way about Pleiadians, since it sounds like this could fall into the same category. I mean, ESP is a form of extrasensory perception, the power to perceive things that can't otherwise be perceived through our normal five senses. This could be in a vision or some sort of sense, or dare I say, communication regarding things or events from distant locations. So could this mean that people like Shay, Robert Perella, and Christine Day have ESP? Or is it something else entirely? Could they really be talking to beings from another universe, become ambassadors to communicate these visions they're receiving? Does that... So does that, when you say like you know information from other places, what's the what's the spectrum on that? The uh, the basic story is that no one has discovered any real limits on the displacement in space and or time. Uh, there have even been ESP experiments from the moon, uh, certainly from across large parts of the planet. Uh, targets generated in the future, either minutes seconds, minutes, hours, days later. And none of these things seems to impose any serious or reliable limitation on the ability of subjects to get the right answer. 
So potentially that could be, you know, and I feel kind of crazy saying this, but it could could that potentially be like other beings? Could it be the apps coming from the afterlife or, you know, um, does that make sense? Is that yeah? No, all of the above. I mean, we don't know. I don't think we know whether there are any um, higher or alien built beings of any kind. But uh, I'm inclined to think that uh, survival is real, and that um, something is out there that can communicate to us uh, that was previously alive. Um, this is again a very big subject Mm -hmm. and the evidence is not compelling although it's strongly suggestive I mean the the rebirth cases for example we have over 2500 of those from all parts of the planet including the US now there are some very good American cases small children who just know all kinds of things they have no way of having learned about in this life and yet they're verifiably correct. Uh, similarly, there are some really excellent mediumistic cases where uh, something comes into a um, mediumistic session that uh, acts and speaks like a known deceased person can provide information that uh, no one present knows but can be verified stuff like that the more i talk with dr kelly the more open i become in sharing my thoughts with him that's when i chose to bring up the vision of my dead father i had when i was 22. like dr broussard suggested i wanted to get some scientific perspective on it part of the something that i've kind of struggled with over the years is is and and of course you may not be able to to give an opinion about it or anything but i when i was when my father died when i was 22, uh, I had this really, really vivid dream of him coming to me and uh, tapping me on the, soldier, on the shoulder from behind. And I was in bed. I was asleep. But it, it felt, it, you know, it felt real. And I felt the tap on my shoulder. And I look, you know, I look, turn around, and he looks basically the way he looked in his coffin and he we we did not have a a, he was absent for most of my life and and I I got to know him the last few years of his life but something has always kind of stuck with me because it was such a you know it felt so real and it was something Mm -hmm. that like you know was that a ghost or I mean I was asleep and I I woke up screaming um, and sweating profusely but it was it was the tap that did it that that, Mm. and so it's just a very curious <clears throat> phenomenon. I've had, you know, I've never, can't say I've ever seen a ghost or anything like that. I've had, my, my sister claims to have seen ghosts or had weird feelings in an old apartment I lived in. And I had a, a girlfriend who, uh, an ex-girlfriend who swore up and down she saw ghosts in my in this old apartment. But I'm I'm just curious about, you know, I don't know. I've got, I've got, I've just got all these questions. I've got, and I know this is a huge subject. And and, but the the thing with my dad is always stuck with me. Like, was that a ghost? Was it just a dream? Am I going crazy? Uh, and I don't know if you can at all comment on that. Since, you well, know. you're certainly not going crazy. That's rule that one out right away. 
Um, lots of people have these kinds of experiences. Uh, there's quite a big literature on them now. They're called after-death communications. Uh, there, ADCs, there are even books about them, like there's a book, uh, Hello from Heaven by the, the Guggenheims, that uh, recounts a bunch of such experiences. And by the way, they're, they're generally quite benign. In fact, one of the early things was uh, by a guy in, uh, uh, in Ireland somewhere, I forget, uh, Dewey Reese, did a study in his county that he worked in uh, of uh, people whose deceased spouses or who felt that they had received some kind of communication or contact from deceased spouses and he undertook to sort of compare them with uh, control persons who you know, had deceased uh, spouses but did not receive such contacts and found that the ones who did were generally dealing much coping much better with grief and loss and that sort of thing. So in that sense, at least, they're psychologically helpful. Now, whether they're real or not, that's, of course, a much more difficult question, but that can only really be assessed in the context of the much bigger literature related to survival. Um, let me uh, just mention one uh, particular kind of evidence that I think is going to emerge as the the kind that really causes the tide to shift. Uh, and it goes back to that book that I mentioned by Bruce Grayson, After. Uh, he'll talk in there, I'm sure, about one special category of near-death experiences. These are ones that occur under extreme physiological conditions, such as deep general anesthesia and or cardiac arrest. And the reason they're so important is that, uh, you know, consciousness used to be a dirty word in science until really the 1980s. This is part of the legacy of behaviorism. Uh, but in recent decades, consciousness research has become a big and respectable subject. And a consensus has emerged uh, broad consensus as to the conditions that are necessary for conscious experience to occur. And those conditions are certainly, at minimum, severely degraded, probably abolished in the best cases under general anesthesia and cardiac arrest. And yet, some people are reporting experiences under those conditions not only experiences, but the most important experiences of their entire lives. And this stuff is coming right out of the heart of biomedical science as we get better and better at retrieving people from the borderlands of death. We're seeing more cases of this sort and better cases. And they cannot be ignored. It's a stark, uh, inescapable conflict with the mainstream picture of how consciousness works. My talk with Dr. Kelly confirmed a couple of things for me. That there are scientists and psychologists who take the world of the paranormal seriously, or at least entertain the idea that there might be life after death. That those who sincerely claim to have seen ghosts or experienced hauntings aren't going crazy or just making it up. While the science behind these experiences, these phenomena, is still young, it's exciting to think of the eventual possibilities that could be opened up. Maybe one day communicating with the dead won't sound so absurd. The other thing that I keep going back to is something that Shay told me in one of our conversations. We are completely out of balance. 
And that balance can only be achieved when we stop looking outwardly and we start looking inwardly. We, we have the capacity to evolve at a spiritual level. When you evolve spiritually to a point where you have reached the level of pure consciousness, I mean, that's essentially divinity. Keep in mind that Shay isn't talking about spirituality in a religious sense, but rather the belief that there is something greater than ourselves, that we are part of a divine or cosmic nature. Remember when Dr. Kelly mentioned Mike Murphy and how he was able to feel the presence of Sri Aurobindo in Pondicherry? This whole podcast, I've been obsessed with whether the vision I had of my father in my 20s was a ghost or just a dream, and what it was supposed to mean. I never really got a definitive answer. Just like Kevin never got a definitive answer about what happened to Christopher Kennedy after he died, whether the disturbance at Braley Pond that Shay experienced had anything to do with his deceased best friend. But I think both of us have been missing the point. Rabbi Sherwin, the rabbi at the synagogue who grew up attending, tells me a story about the death of his own father. When I was 16, 17, um, I had just learned to drive, and it was the late 60s. And I listened to music almost as loud as I listen to it today. I always had the radio, which was an AM radio at the time, turned way up. Okay, now I have my MP3s on the phone and I just blast it. But I would turn it way up. My father would yell at me. My father would um, say, I can hear you all the way from Rayon Street. Rand Street was two blocks away. It was the main street. I would turn in and then turn left, turn right and then turn left to get to my house. So it was two blocks away. And my father would say, turn the radio down. I got to the point where I would hear him saying in my head, turn the radio down, and I would do it. Fast forward about, 60, uh, about 50 years. I moved into Orlando in 2000. To get to my house, I have to turn off the main street, I make left for a short block, and then I turn right and go up half a block. Same distances from Rayon Street. And I have always heard my father's voice in me saying, turn the radio down, <laughs> okay? He died a few years ago. I still hear that voice. Now I can say that voice haunts me, or I laugh and say, it is so ingrained into my soul that a way of remembering my father with a smile is turn the damn radio down. Then I asked Rabbi Sherwin about my friend Stephen, who died when I was 10. As I talked about in episode two, Stephen was killed in a car wreck, and Rabbi Sherwin was the one who told Stephen's mother Ruth and his father Lester that their little boy was gone. He also led the funeral service, the one my sister Mary and I weren't allowed to attend. His death shook me, and I can't say that it's something I've ever gotten over. I wanted to talk about um, Stephen's death, and um, you know, I just kind of wanted to get your, I guess, your memories of it. Like, because I don't think I've ever talked to you about kind of how you found out about it. Like, what, you know, what, what it did to you as a rabbi and being being close, you know, with him and, and the, you know as a teacher and um, in the community? There are people who will say 30 years after a death, 
that they feel the presence, a palpable presence. Um, and I can see, let me tell you something. Do you know the date Stephen died in the Jewish calendar? It's the fifth night of Hanukkah. I want to see it was December, December. something. Yeah. I, I know it's there, but again, I've only remembered it was the fifth night of Hanukkah. Okay? And I have to tell you, there is something for me palpable, whether it's the presence or not. There is something I will describe as palpable. Rabbi Sherwin is very explicit when he uses the word palpable, because though he doesn't want to use the term ghost, he acknowledges that there is a very real presence that is left after someone dies. When we light the five can the, the candles for the fifth night, I've never forgotten his yard site. And I generally leave a message for Ruth and Lester. I've just never forgotten it. I feel a palpable, a palpable presence. I don't know exactly, I can't define it. There's something that I feel, not just an emotion. Okay? I mean, seriously, it's been 35 years, we're going on 36 years now. It's a long time. It's a long time. I remember Stephen. Okay? I remember all you kids. The memory that sticks out with me, and it is, I'm getting goosebumps is I was in the emergency room with Lester. If you remember, Ruth was also injured. And they had, when Stephen was brought in, he had his watch that he had gotten for Hanukkah and some other things, Lester was holding it. I was the one who had to tell Lester that Stephen died. Why the doctors didn't do it, I don't know, but it just worked out as we're sitting there. And maybe the doctors didn't want Lester to know yet. I don't know. But Lester was saying, I want to bring him home. I want to bring him home. I want to bring him home. I want them to be all right. I want them to be all right. And the doctor had already told me that Stephen was dead. And I remember I was the one who told Lester. I remember riding in the limousine with the family. I had never ridden in a limousine before to be with the family. I remember the next day, uh, day after the funeral, um, the where Stephen went to school, they, everybody had gathered, or now where they went to school, where friends had gathered um, at the day school. And they were all, everybody was obviously blown, you know, really not more than upset, numb. And I attended that. And the Orthodox rabbi was there, um, probably along the Kabbalistic line, and had the audacity, and I remember this, to tell the kids who were there and this, to the school staff that God puts us here on earth for a purpose, and when we finish our purpose, uh, God uh, calls on us back to heaven or wherever you want to call it. And I remember being horrified. How can I explain the death of a 10-year-old that he came back only for 10 years to be killed in a car accident? 
And at that point, I changed quite a bit. Number one, there is a line in the Jewish funeral service that a lot of Christians use as well. Adonai Natan Adonai Lakach Yehishem Adonai Mevarach. God has given, God has taken away. May God's name be blessed forever. I refuse to recite that line from that day on. That God has given and God has taken away. How can a compassionate God willingly, willfully take away the life of a ten-year-old? It just didn't jive with any view of God I wanted to have. Be a manipulative God. So I stopped using that line. And again, we're talking the end of 1985. And that was a change. Second change. When my kids started driving, and they were 16, so Josh was born in 81, so he was, was 1997, he gets his driver's license, Davi, two years later. With all of my kids, anytime they got in the car to leave, I said to them, and I say to them to this day, drive carefully and watch out for crazies. I say that all the time with Stephen in mind. Driving is can be dangerous, and I don't know if I'll ever see the kids again. I have that little fear in me every time they got in the car, and I never let them leave the house without me saying I love you. That is Stephen. It affected me profoundly, and I feel Stephen's presence constantly. The thing is, I do too. I still hear his laugh. It was sort of a cackle, a series of cartoonish, hearty yucks. And I remember his dark brown hair cut straight across the middle of his forehead. And I remember the way he used to move his jaw up and down, his mouth opening and closing as he cut paper with scissors. Every time I get into the car with my boys, I think of Stephen, if only for a second. And when my older son experienced a similar tragedy with a boy his age, I told him about my own best friend. I knew exactly how he was feeling. But I also feel my father's presence. With two sons of my own, the decisions I make as I raise them are directly affected by him, for better or for worse. My boys ask me questions about him when they see his photo in my bedroom. I'm a better father because of the mistakes my own dad made, the lack of interest he seemed to have in my sister and me, and the fact that he didn't contact us until we were 18. But I also imagine what kind of grandfather he'd be if he was around. I think he would have been a good one. For all the people who've died in my life, my father, my childhood friend Stephen, my grandfather who helped raise my sister and me until he died of lung cancer, just before we turned 13, I still feel them in my life. I still feel their presence. Maybe that's the point. Do ghosts really exist? Are there portals to other dimensions? Can we manipulate the dark and light energy around us? Does it matter? We want to still be able to feel the connections we have with the ones who've died in our lives. The thing is, we still can. Maybe those connections come in the form of hauntings. Or maybe it's as simple as remembering how those we've lost impacted us while they were alive, and how our memories of them serve as reminders for how to move forward. What Happened at Braley Pond is produced by me, Charlie Moss. The exceptional Bill Colrus is our story editor. Our music and sound design are by the legendary Mike Triplecock. 
our website, which can be found at www.braileypondpodcast.com, was created by the outstanding Ashton Lance. Our podcast logo was designed by the phenomenal Shelton Brown. Additional artwork is by the incredibly patient Keith Finch. Special thanks to Monty Brock for his scientific insight and my wife, Vanessa, who was overwhelmingly supportive during this three-year process. Mm-hmm.